Well, this past week, Marion and I celebrated our eight-year wedding anniversary. And I remembered, I was thinking back as we planning our marriage during that time, I was thinking through how we went over the different wedding arrangements and the ceremony and also the party afterwards, all that thought, all that stuff. And I was thinking about the actual wedding ceremony itself at the church and all the planning that went involved with that. And I remembered that during that time, when we got back to the States and we were printing out the, the order of service and everything, I remember talking with my mom about it. Now, my mother grew up in the 1950s and 60s, right, in the U.S. And so she grew up in a pretty traditional home. The roles of men and women were pretty clear at that time. Now, maybe not so much in my mother's home, uh, but in many homes during the 50s and 60s in the United States, the roles of men and women, husband and wife, were very clear. Now, like I said, maybe not in my mother's home, but in some homes, many, the husband was kind of the lord of the castle, the Tarzan of the jungle. And the woman was the, maybe the Jane of the jungle, or sometimes, unfortunately, more like the doormat of the jungle. She was sometimes seen as the, um, you can be seen and not heard type figure in some homes at that time. And so my mother grew up during this period in America, especially the 60s, a very tumultuous period that started to challenge that order and who was in authority. You may know from your own history readings, the civil rights movement was well underway in the U.S. in the 60s. The sexual revolution was taking off, challenging what the authorities said about sex. The Vietnam War in the United States pushed many to challenge and doubt the U.S. government and its authority. The women's rights movement, of course, and the second wave of feminism was well underway. So you can understand at that time that my mother was growing up, authority on all sides was being challenged, including and especially authority in the home. So when it came time for our wedding, talking about our marriage vows or wedding vows that Mary and I were going to take and my mother looking at it and seeing, oh, we're going to be reading from this text, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, And you're not really going to be asking your wife to submit to you in any way, are you really, Jonathan, going to be asking her to do that? You know, it's kind of old-fashioned, right? You don't actually think you're any kind of authority over her, do you? It's a mutual kind of submission, right? Well, I wonder as you read this text that we're about to read, you've read it before, I wonder how you respond to authority in your life. Or how do you use authority if you're, a position, if you're a person in a position of authority? Whatever stage of life you're in, whether you're a kid, whether you're older, married, or not, I think whatever culture we're from nowadays, Eastern, Western, we tend to equate any kind of authority with authoritarianism. So we see it as a threat. We see it as a very real threat in our lives that in the wake of the 20th century we live in a post-authority era we live in an era that prizes individualism we live in an era that says don't tell me how to run my life i self-identify who i am and i have autonomy to decide what i do no one's going to tell me how to run my life not even my own spouse i suspect for many of us here we also distrust authority especially after last year's lockdown 
and how authority really clamped down in our lives in a very personal way. Well, friends, I want us to see, because the Bible wants us to see, God wants us to see that, in fact, authority exercised properly is a good thing. A good authority is a blessing from God. God has ordained authorities in our lives for our good. And good authority always protects good leadership, always provides good leadership sacrifices. Good authority, in fact, points us back to God, who is the one true authority from where all authority comes from. And so over the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to look at those positions of authority, who has authority, who is under authority, and how do we submit in a loving way, in a way that's beneficial for us and for um, the different settings that we're in. Today, we're going to start off looking at marriage and authority in the home. And then, Lord willing, like I said, next week, we'll be looking at other settings. So I want us to look together now. Paul's going to be teaching us, what is God's will for us in marriage? Psalm, or excuse me, Ephesians 5. We'll be picking up the reading at verse 22, reading through to the end of the chapter. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Hear the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, as we do dive through this text, I want to say up front, this is not just a text for wives and husbands. Paul is speaking directly to wives and husbands. But let me say up front, if you're single, I believe this text will help you in many ways, one of which is you'll be helped to care for people who are married in the church to understand what their struggles are and how you might be assisting them. Or if you're single and you desire to marry, then this text will also help you prepare for a possible future marriage. Because make no mistake about it, the view of marriage in the world around us has changed so much. It's very antithetical to what Christians should be hoping for and looking for in marriage. So if you aren't married yet but hope to be, every time that I say wife or husband, perhaps just mentally put the word future in front of that. If you're desiring marriage, future husband, future wife, here's what you should think about. Or kids. This is not just text for your parents. 
Kids, this text is showing you, as you grow up, what type of spouse you should desire to be and what you should be looking for in a spouse. So this, I pray, for especially for you kids, will be implanted deep in your heart as you counter lies in our culture about marriage, but also grow up to maturity in Christ to know what to look for in a marriage. And I would say also, if you're divorced, this passage is going to help you make sense of what you experienced in the past. But also for us who are married, this will be instructive for us, I pray, for our marriages. And I'm not going to be able to cover everything in this text that I would like to. But with God's help, let's look now at what the Lord is teaching us. What is God's will for marriage? What does God desire for it? And why does it matter for the church? That's basically what Paul's talking about here. If that's what you want to take away, if nothing else, God's will for us in marriage as Christians and why it matters for the church. But my main aim for this sermon is to help us see that the goal of Christian marriage is to be so full of love for Christ that others would see Christ in the marriage. Now, we as Christians would be so full of love for Christ that it would show in our marriage. Now, I have three main points, as you can see from the handout, if you've got it, and those are just coming straight from the text as we go through. I hope you can see that. But first of all, I want to back up just for a second and help us remember the context a little bit because Last week, I did touch on verse 21. I didn't have a lot to say, but I did want to make a note of it and remind us here that when Paul's talking about submission, he talks about in verse 21 to submit to each other. And we looked last time at kind of making sure we understand what Paul means in the context. When Paul says that, to submit to each other, he's not saying there is a mutual submission going on both ways in all these relationships. So marriage, husband and wife, uh, family, you've got the parents and the, and the child, or the household, the work setting, you've got the master and the slave. As you look through that, just notice Paul is not calling on both sides to submit to each other. And that's not what the relationship is. Um, instead, Paul is teaching that there is an authority in each of these situations, and there is a submission on the part of one recognizing the God-given authority and honoring that. It's going to help us understand, then, first of all, why Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Let's look at this again, verses 22 through 24. You can see it right there in the text. Uh, Submission is not something to be embarrassed about. It's something to embrace. Submission, as I started off by saying, you know, this has been a hot topic in the church for decades now. And our culture is telling us that to submit to any authority, particularly husbands, is really, it's an anathema in many places. And increasingly in the church, unfortunately, there's been a lot of misunderstanding of what submission is. And so I want to kind of counter some of these stereotypes. There's perhaps some misunderstandings of what submission is. And I'm going to give us very quickly nine things of what submission is and is not. First of all, submission is not agreeing on everything. So in a a relationship, in a marriage, just because a husband and wife are married, that doesn't mean they're going to agree on what TV show to watch every night or what's the better ice cream flavor. It doesn't mean imposing your own preferences on someone else. Now, submission is certainly not agreeing to commit sinful acts. So wives, future wives, if your husband ever tells you to do something you know is sinful, 
you have a biblical basis to say no. The Bible never says that you should submit to someone who's asking you, telling you to do something sinful. Just think, for example, of Acts 5, when the apostles are told by the civil authorities, right? Somebody even in authority, God-appointed authority, they're told to stop preaching the word of God. And what do the apostles and disciples say? They say, no, we must obey God rather than men. And so, wives, if your husbands are ordering you ever to do something you know is sinful, then know that you have God's word to back you up and uh, to refuse to do something and not agree to it. So submission is not agreeing on everything. But number two, submission is voluntary. It's not forcibly taken. Submission is voluntary. It's not forcibly taken. So notice Paul here does not say, Paul does not say, husbands, make your wives submit to you. Here in verses 22 through 24, he's speaking primarily to the wives, right? And he's saying, wives, you submit. That's a voluntary act on the part of the wife. Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord because submission is something freely given. It's her intelligent, it's her graceful, grateful deference on the part of the wife as it is with every Christian submission to the Lord Jesus, right? As Christians, we don't go around this world um, sword in hand, forcing people to confess and believe in Jesus Christ. And Christ doesn't do that to us. So we don't do that in our marriages either. Submission is voluntary, not forcibly taken. So men, um, this should almost go without saying, men, we do not have the authority to pry and tear submission out of our wives. It's something voluntarily given. Number three, submission to your husband also does not mean submission to all men. Very important, I think, to understand here. There's been confusion, I think, in Christian circles that Oh, just because someone's a woman, she has to submit to every single man across all layers of society. And I don't believe that's what Paul's saying here. In fact, verse 22 spells it out clearly. Submit to your husband. So again, men, you and I, we don't have the authority to walk out on the street, walk up to any woman and tell them to obey us. That's not what Paul is saying here. I don't think that's the the job of, of men or the requirement on women. It's meant for their husbands. Number four, a submissive wife is also not a weak woman. This is a popular stereotype that we need to debunk. In fact, women can be very strong. I mean, just think of a lot of biblical examples of faithful women uh, that we see in Scripture, right? Think of Esther as a great example of a faithful woman, a submissive woman as well. Esther very courageously approaches the king and asks that um, he would intervene on the part of her people. That's a bold act. I don't see um, Esther as being a weak woman at all in that case, right? So we should not expect that just because a woman is being submissive, that therefore she's weak. They're not the same thing. And so when we think of women submitting, it doesn't mean that women are just wallflowers or something to be trod over. But number five, another thing we need to clarify is that submission also does not imply inferiority. Submission does not imply inferiority. Rather, it implies complementing each other. 
Right, Paul's going to say later on in this passage, verses 31 and 32, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. See, both people are made in the image of God. You need to remember that a woman is not any less valuable, especially a wife. And so I think that's also a good reminder that, you know, men are not better at everything than women are. Um, I'm terrible at administration and accounting. Just because I'm a man and a husband, that doesn't mean then that I have to do all the accounting and administrative stuff in my, in my marriage. In our marriage, there's going to be roles that one person or there's going to be duties that one person might be better at. So we complement each other and find out what are our strengths and weaknesses. That's not violating submission because submission does not imply inferiority or sort of a lower skill set of any kind. But number six, submission does not imply also devaluing a person. Rather, it's the glorifying or the honoring of another. It doesn't imply devaluing a person. I mean, just think of Jesus himself, right? Jesus submitted to his earthly parents. He showed them honor, as was proper under the law. It didn't make Jesus any less divine. It didn't violate his role as the second person of the Trinity. And he was honoring his parents and giving glory to God, his Father, by doing that. But number seven, submission also doesn't mean a woman is an unthinking wife. I think this is often the, the, one of the stereotypes as well coming out of feminism and the sexual revolution that submission, submission just means a woman has to shut off her mind. I don't think that's what we see in Scripture at all either. I think wives are thoughtful and expressive. They should be allowed to be. Like a great example of this is Ruth. And what does Ruth do after her husband dies? She has a decision to make. It's not taken out of her hands, right? She is the one who initiates and says, I'm going to go with my mother-in-law out of honor for her mother-in-law and for her family. And she decides, takes the initiative and expresses herself. Where you go, I will go, right? That's a part of honoring uh, her husband, but it's not as though Ruth has to sort of... um, remove her own personality from herself in order, in order to serve her husband. No, Ruth doesn't do that. It's her initiative. She chose bravely and boldly to bring honor to her family by following her mother-in-law to Bethlehem and even marrying Boaz. But number eight, at the same time, submission is not enslavement or living in fear. It's not enslavement or living in fear. Uh, if it is, it's not biblical submission and headship, in my opinion, and the teaching I think that Paul is saying here. Submission is, it's a gracious outpouring of gifts to serve another one in authority. So, friends, submission doesn't mean, like if you're a woman, I don't think anyone here is guilty of this. I don't think submission is, oh, women have to get permission from men to speak or to go use the bathroom or something like that. Unfortunately, I've heard stories of that. Um, I heard of a story, for example, of a a couple, a man forbid his wife to speak in public because she embarrassed him one time, or he perceived to be embarrassed by her. That's not godly submission. That's not godly use of authority. That's more of an enslavement type of role, I believe. True leadership is going to listen. True leadership serves the other person well. 
But number nine, submission also does not mean the suppression of gifts. Rather, submission allows for the flowering and blossoming of gifts. And I hope to bring this out a little bit more in just a moment. So there's a nine quick things. And if questions about those, please talk with me after the service. But I want us to see here that this exhortation for wives to submit to husbands is, is a good thing. And it's also a biblical thing. It's not just here in Ephesians 5. In fact, every single time in the New Testament that wives are mentioned and have a relationship to spouses, um, wives are told to submit to their husbands. So this is not an isolated command. I'm not going to look at these now. You can look at them later. Uh, Colossians 3.18, 1 Peter 3, verse 1, Titus 2, verse 4. These are all places where Paul gives similar commands or Peter gives a command for wives to submit to their husbands. Now, this is the command. I hope that clears up, clears up a little bit, some misconfusion or some confusion about um, submission. But look here in verse 23, because Paul is going to give some reason or grounds why he gives this command. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself as its savior. This is the reason for why... Wives are to submit. Now, some people are going to read this. They see husband is the head, the kephale, as it is in Greek. And they read that, especially feminist scholars are going to read that and say, oh, what Paul actually means there is the man is just sort of the the source of the wife, kind of like a river. You think the head of a river. It doesn't imply any sort of authority. And that's the context they want to bring into it. But in fact, uh, Paul never uses that word kephale, head, that way in the Bible. And in over 2,000 instances of this word in, New, in Greek outside of the Bible, it's never used that way. It's always used to clarify an authority and someone submitting to that authority. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's establishing the authority of the husband in marriage. And his grounds, his reason is because just as Christ is the head of the church, so too the husband is the head of the wife. So think back here, what, that, what does that mean? And Paul said earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, if you remember, that Christ has given gifts to his church, right? And Christians are to exercise those gifts for the building up of the body. And so all Christians should be giving in service and in worship to God. Christ never commands someone's gifts to be silenced for building up the body. Instead, he's saying that we need to exercise those gifts to help another person, to help others know God more, worship him more faithfully, obey his commands more and more each day. And so, too, wives have God-given gifts and abilities that they are to use to help their home and their husbands carry out his mission to serve God, to know God in the home. And so, friends, just like in the church, we're not to disregard these gifts. Uh, the wife as well as to submit, not because of reducing those gifts or suppressing them, uh, but under the care of her husband to grow the family using the gifts that she has. And so that means God gives authority to husbands that is designed to lead their family in a life of sacrificial love towards others and glorifying service to God. But for the wife, God designed her to serve and aid her husband honor his leadership so that he can carry out his responsibility to lead in that way. 
All right, this is a picture of a helpmate. So one person defines submission this way. Submission is the defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and so help to carry it through according to her gifts. So wives and and women, future wives, I want you to hear this. You have gifts. God has given you gifts for his church. You are valued. You have high value. You've been given wonderful blessings. Express those gifts in your home and in the church. Your Christian service is glorious and valuable. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that not just here in the context of church and in your own home, but in the context of the world. It's very important to remember that. Whether you're married or not, as women, your success, your standing, depends on something completely different than what the world is going to tell you. The world's going to tell you your standing, your success, your value is based on how much money you make, your job status, what promotion you get, what achievements you can point to. But that's not the same standard. That's not the same um, calling that God has put on your life. Your standard of success is based on honoring God with your gifts for the kingdom of God. That's a more infinite value than anything else in this world. And that, I, that is found in giving the, uh, exercising the gifts that Christ has given you. And so if you're a wife, you're calling to help your husband in a, in a way that complements his call is of extreme value. Very worthwhile. And so why is one way to apply this command to submit is to ask yourself, do my actions, do my words, do my attitudes... Do they enable my husband to lead our family to a better knowledge of God? Am I using my gifts to encourage my husband's leadership? Am I using my gifts to aid the welfare of my husband? I think there's some wives out there, not here of course, who might say, well, it's very difficult to be in this marriage and I don't know if I love my husband. I just want to encourage, if you know someone like that, You've been in that situation before. And your job as a wife, so to speak, using your gifts, if the Spirit is working, as He's promised to do, you're encouraging, you're, you're uh, exercising of your gifts. We trust that the Spirit is even working in your husband so that he is growing to become more and more like Jesus. If you are pointing your husband to Jesus all the way, the Spirit is working in him, you will expect, you should expect to see fruit over time in your husband's life. So proper submission might in fact involve challenging your husband in a loving way with God's word. So far from silencing your opinion, wives can also speak to your husband from God's word without harming him or another, but making wise biblical choices to bless the family. And so, men, we also want to say here that we should aspire, all men should be to aspire to be someone that a woman would delight to submit to. So, men, your job is to show how beneficial it is to submit to, submit to good leadership. You know, even if you're not married, you're planning to be maybe in the future, show yourself to be someone, who, a woman that would 
be pleased to submit to. And if you are single, you're a single woman, or you know somebody who's single and perhaps dating, if you can't possibly imagine submitting to a man you're dating or thinking about dating, you need to think again about being in that relationship. And don't be in a relationship with a guy that you know you can't submit to in Christ. So this is Paul's exhortation to women, wives, I should say, submit to your husbands. But the bulk of the teaching here, the commands actually go to the husband. You see that here in our second point. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25, Paul gives this command. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I wonder if you read that and you think, yeah, of course, husbands love your wives. We should do that, right? This common knowledge, pretty routine. Well, not in Paul's day when he's writing this, right? You know, 2,000 years ago, even maybe 100 years ago, the command for husbands to love their wives is sort of unique. It is unique. You know, husbands reading this 2,000 years ago and Paul wrote it, are probably more thinking of, you know, I'm married to this woman. She's produced me an heir. Maybe she helps me out of my shop. What more is there to do? Um, she's just helping me out that way. You see what Paul's doing? He's elevating the bar quite high. Uh, the duty of a husband, biblically, is much higher, very different than the culture around us. Roman culture, Greek culture, Jewish background, they would have thought this is very high standard than what I'm used to. It's a very shocking command that, unfortunately today, we don't find shocking enough. But what you need to see here is that Paul and the Bible are elevating this duty for husbands. And he gives us at least three ways that husbands are to seriously love our wives to fulfill this calling. And he teaches all of us, really, not just husbands, a lot of what it means to love, but also Christ's love for his church. And so notice, as we walk through here, this command, husbands, love your wives. The first thing that Paul says to do that, the first way is he's saying to love her sacrificially. Headship, to be the head of the wife, is to love sacrificially. You can see that in verse 25. To love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that should cause us to stop and say, how did Christ love the church? Gave himself up for her? Yep. He gave his very life for the church on the cross. But more than that, I mean, Christ was not stingy with his time. He was not stingy with his energy. Uh, he was giving. He was constantly going from place to place teaching. Right? He had no place to lay his head. Um, Christ was constantly seeking and saving the lost at the expense of his um, at the expense of his comforts, at the expense of his time. And so as we think about Paul's command here, we should remember that Jesus served the church not only by giving his life, but he gave everything that he had to protect and rescue people from sin. Now, this is the type of love that we see in the parable of the good shepherd, for example. A shepherd leaves the 99 for the sake of the one sheep. That's the sacrificial love that Paul has in mind here. 
And so biblical headship, as one person said, is it's the exercise of God-given authority whereby a man does all that is within his power to see love, justice, and mercy rule in his home, even when fostering such qualities requires his own personal sacrifice. And so husbands, or future husbands, men, you know, that means that your role and my role is to protect our wives from sin, to lead her out of temptation, to lead her to Christ. We do that by giving of our time, by giving of our energy, by giving up of our comfort. Our job is to make our home, as it were, a mini church so that God would be known and his reign would increase there each day. Someone once said, husbands, we lead more clearly and most effectively, most attractively, most like Christ when we live sacrificially. So this sacrificial love, giving of ourselves, everything that we can for the sake of our wives and for our families, it's going to help us avoid two extremes in being a husband. You know, on the one hand, when people think of submission and and headship, There's one danger for men, which is we could be domineering in a marriage. We could be sort of clamping down on a wife, even unfortunately abusive. I mean, let's just be clear here up front, abuse is never okay. But domineering also in the sense of tearing down a wife verbally or emotionally, that is not biblical headship. That's never okay. That's not the model that Jesus himself gave for us when Jesus is giving sacrificially. He never tears down anybody verbally or definitely not physically. He's not abusing them. He's never selfish in putting his needs first. He's sacrificing himself. So if we remember that as husbands, we can avoid the trap of being domineering. But on the other hand, if we really take seriously Paul's call for sacrificial love, it's going to avoid the trap of being absent as a, as a husband. But I actually think that being absent is more common among bad husbanding than being domineering. I think most husbands are failing in their duties to care for their wives well because they're not there, uh, because they're not taking leadership seriously to uh, teach their wives, to teach their children. But the fact is, as husbands, we have a job. We have a responsibility. We have a duty to make decisions. And we need to remember that because unfortunately so many husbands are absent. So when you're husbanding, I would say if you're not regularly feeling a pinch on your time, on your energy, maybe on your comfort, on your focus, from the, the, you know, the, the desires to have to shepherd your wife, then perhaps that's a warning sign. You might want to see that as like a light on your dashboard of your car going off that you need to seriously pay attention to the needs of your wife. I think this is an important reminder of sacrificial love, not just for husbands, but for all of us as Christians. Because whether you're married or not, you too are called to love your neighbor. You know, Jesus was asked by that scribe in Mark 12, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with your whole being. And then Jesus sort of throws in a bonus commandment, right? Right? He says, and also love your neighbor as yourself. 
Well, as husbands, our first neighbor is our wife. But all of us as Christians have neighbors that we're called to love well. And so this reminds all of us to give of our time, of our effort, our space to those who are in need, those who don't know Jesus or those who are far from him, and bring him back, bring them back to Jesus to point them to Christ. And that's going to take sacrifice on our parts. But also, if you're here today and you've been coming to church for a long time and you're still not quite sure what is the gospel and what is, who is Jesus, what did he do, then I want you to see here in this verse, verse 25, this is a picture of what the gospel is when Jesus gives his life for the church, a sacrificial love. I mean, this is a picture of the gospel in short, that you and I are guilty sinners, that we stand before God under his wrath because we failed to conform to his perfect commands. And if we're left in our own sin, then we deserve God's righteous judgment. But the good news is that Christ, not because of how lovely we are, but because of how much he loved us, he comes to this earth, takes on human flesh, but he also took on all the sin of you and all my sin, all the dirtiness that we have. He bore the wrath of God against sin, and he gave his own life so that you might have life. I mean, that's love. I don't know if I'd die for any of you if I had to save my son. I I love my son so much, but... I mean, Jesus gives his life for people who don't deserve it at all. If you know him today, you know that that sacrifice can't be matched by anything that we bring to him. And this is what Jesus does. This is what the gospel is. It turns something lost, turns something broken, into something precious and whole. Not because of how great we are, but because of how great he is. And so in our marriages, we have a chance to show others what does it mean to sacrifice in that way out of love for someone, even if we think they don't deserve it, or especially because they don't deserve it. It takes leadership. But secondly, not only, so not only do we have, as Paul's commanding us here as husbands, but really as all Christians in a way, not only do we need to remember the sacrificial love, but also husbands loving our wives with a sanctifying love. So Paul goes on to say here in verses 26 through 27, he says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Jesus gave himself up for her. Why? How? that he might sanctify her. So there it is. Sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, we need to see it. Headship here is not dirtying, sullying. It's sanctifying love. Christ's love for his church that we see here means he turns something sinful, something dirty and unlovable because of sin into something precious and beloved. 
know, Jesus didn't come to this earth and rescue a, an already holy people, right? He came to this earth and rescued an unholy people. Just imagine what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. What was Jesus doing? He was speaking the word. He was preaching regularly to people, calling them to repentance and faith. What did Jesus do? He went to many different towns healing people, uh, people that were broken physically, who had blemishes physically. Uh, What did he do? He went around to different towns and cities exercising demons out of people, often called unclean spirits, people who were sullied with sin, even evil spirits. Jesus went around. He also touched the unclean. Think of many of his miraculous healings. He was actually touching someone who was ceremonially unclean. But Jesus, out of compassion, actually reaches out to those unclean people. Jesus comforted many people in their infirmities. You see that proactive nature in Jesus' earthly ministry. It's not just to provide people physical healing or physical comfort. It's to show the love that he has by sanctifying people to make them holy unto himself. That he draws people to himself out of his own sanctifying love, washing them um, from their sin and bringing them to himself. And that's what he does for us as the church. All of us in the church, as members of the church, are people who have been washed by the blood of Christ because he has come to us in our infirmities. And all of us as the church, we are being washed by the word week in and week out so that when Christ comes again, we'll be presented to him as holy and without blemish. And so husbands, we have a holy calling. We have a holy calling to wash our wives in the word, to speak the word of Christ to them uh, so that they would be greater in knowledge of God, but also uh, greater in their hatred of sin and, and greater in their holiness. I would say, husbands, we have a holy duty to make our homes a mini-church, as I said already. I think that includes family worship. I know that our families do this, but if you're thinking about starting your own family or thinking about marriage, and you're a man, let me tell you, you have a holy duty, a holy responsibility to lead your family well in family worship regularly. That's... Why, uh, sanctifying your spouse starts with family worship. It doesn't have to be something fancy. Our family worship is very simple. It has three parts to it. First, we read a Bible story with questions. And then we sing a psalm that we plan to sing on Sunday. And then we pray together. Three prayer requests. That's it. It can be as 15 minutes, as quick as 15 minutes, or as long as you want. But if you're a man, married, aspiring to be married... Remember, you have a holy duty to lead your family in, um, in worship. But I like what Thomas Watson has to say or suggest about loving our wives well with a sanctifying love. He says, husband, show your love to your wife by covering her infirmities, by avoiding occasions of strife, by sweet, endearing expressions, by pious counsel, by encouraging what you see as amiable and virtuous in her, by mutual prayer, by being with her, unless you're on some urgent business, by being present and attentive and proactive, it shows that you truly care for her. Somebody, if there's a, if you're a pilot of a ship and you just leave that ship on dangerous waves, it shows that you don't value it or 
or think that there's any treasure in it. As husbands, we are to plant ourselves on the ship. Whatever sort of dangers may come or distractions may come to show that we're actively leading our wives to help make them holier. And just think, husbands, future husbands, when Christ comes again, we'll have to give an account of how we loved our wives. Do we do so as Christ loved the church? Do we do it as a sanctifying love? I pray so. But there's a third way here that husbands are called to love our wives. And again, I believe this is important for all of us, not just husbands. And Paul says here that we are to love our wives with self-love. So we've got sacrificial love, we've got sanctifying love, and we have self-love in verses 28 through 30. Paul says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So just think about this. Christ loves the church. The church is a spiritual body. He doesn't abuse it. He doesn't mock it. If Christ did not care for his church, he would, he would be diminishing his own glory. If Christ did not provide for the church, he would be diminishing its glory. If Christ did not teach, its, teach his church, he would be diminishing from his own glory. So husbands, future husbands, we are called to a jealous love for our wives as we would love our own selves. Uh, we watched last night this movie, uh, Se- uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. If you, guys, you guys have probably seen this. You know the stories, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. You know the, the wicked um, queen, the, the stepmother. And what does she do? Uh, the beginning of the movie, she goes up to this big mirror on the wall and she says, magic mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest one of all? Right? And the magic person in the mirror responds and says that it's actually Snow White. And the queen flies off into a rage, right? And the whole movie is really about her jealousy over Snow White's beauty and doing everything that she can to try to get rid of Snow White. As Christians, especially Christian men, husbands, we should have a holy desire and jealousy to see beauty in our wives, sanctifying beauty, Christ-honoring beauty, we should desire it because we also um, we would desire to love our own selves in this way. We're called to be sympathetic to their needs, their physical needs, their emotional needs, everything that they need to flourish. Because we know that when we love them well, we not only bring glory to them, but to God's works to sanctify us as well. And so we can build up our wives in a couple ways. With physical needs... Right? Her body is your body in a sense. You provide for her physically. It should be a breadwinner of some kind. Make sure she's fed and clothed. Um, you protect her from physical harm as much as possible. When you're sick, you attend to her. But this doesn't mean, husbands, that we have a biblical command um, to waste resources. It's the opposite. If, Christ, if, G, if Paul's telling us here to love our wives well with a self-love, that means we should be careful with how we spend our money because we want to um, not spend our money on frivolous things or waste our time and resources on frivolous things, but instead we should be conscious 
that we spend our time and money in ways that benefit others, especially our wives. But also our wives' emotional needs. Part of loving your wife well means you care for her emotionally. So you don't ever imply that your wife is inherently weak or can't fend for herself or that women are hopelessly needy without men. That's just not true. It's not biblical. Obviously, there's going to be some women who are more energetic, more headstrong, more outgoing in nature than their husbands. But part of our loving our wives well is recognizing differences in them in each other and seeing differences as complementary. And before we move on to the, to the next and final point, I just want to say, husbands and future husbands, it's good to care for your wife as you would want to be cared for. Is One way to do that is during your marriage or in your marriage, perhaps set aside, set aside one time a week as kind of a check-in with your wife. And maybe it's just 10 minutes. You take a stroll, just the two of you, or the kitchen table after the kids are down to bed or whatever. Just check in and say, how are you doing this week? Let's talk about how your week is going. Um, that's a helpful habit to have in marriage to make sure you're seeing to the needs of your wife. And kids, I hope you can understand that your parents sometimes need that space and time uh, to ask each other, to make sure they're caring for each other well, especially to love each other. Um, that's one thing that we need to see in our marriages. Okay, so Paul started by directly addressing wives, then he addresses husbands, and then now in verses 32 and 33, he has a word for them both. You can see it right there in verses 31, or 32 and 33. Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, of course, Paul here is quoting from Genesis 2 when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. And his point is to show just how united Christ is to his church. Christ is intimately united. Now, Paul says mystery here. Mystery here is not like oh, this is some sort of secret code word or special handshake that you learn in a, you know, in a secret society. That's not the kind of mystery that Paul is thinking of here when he talks about Christ and the church. The mystery here is just talking about, as he said earlier in this letter, it's God's plan from eternity that was not so understood before but now has been fully revealed through Jesus Christ. It's a making known through Jesus, now that Christ has come, making known more clearly God's will for our salvation. That God intended marriage from the beginning to be an image of Christ's union with his body in the church. So it was a mystery before because in Genesis 2, for example, they couldn't have known, like we know now, that marriage was a picture of Christ in his church. But now, Christ having come has made that known and Christ will fully consummate his bride, the church, when he comes again. That's what the book of Revelation speaks of, for example, when it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, God's will for a Christian marriage is that it would image this relationship between Christ and the church. That God's will is that Christian marriages would reflect sacrificial, sanctifying, and self-love that Christ has for his church. So when you see a Christian husband loving his wife well, leading well, providing well, 
speaking well of his wife, bringing her to Jesus, and the wife submitting to that leadership and flourishing under it, her gifts developing, then that's an image to believers and to the world alike of that redemptive relationship between Christ and his church. And friends, that's so important to remember in this day and age when we have to fight as Christians for a biblical view of marriage. We can't take it for granted, especially in the West. A marriage has been so devalued. But just remember the Ephesians here in this letter, they are the minority in a city full of idolatry, full of um, fleshly pleasures. Paul is telling them, look, you have an opportunity to witness to a culture around you through your marriages who Christ is and what he has done. And so today, too, we should be encouraged. As we meet non-Christians, we show them, we invite them into our lives, married or uh, Christian friends, that we have an opportunity to display in our relationships what Christ has done for us. But I just want to say a few words of final application here as we think through this passage on marriage and God's will for marriage. Let me first of all say that if you are single, I want you to hear from me that the Bible is not saying that you are in any way missing out on what God intends for you. I don't want you to read this passage and and assume that or think that. That if you are a Christian single, you are not missing out. You are not missing out on the union that you have with Christ and all the blessing and benefits that come through that. Particularly for those who have the gift of celibacy, you're not missing out on what God intends for you. You're not any less valuable to the kingdom of God. You're not any less valuable to this church. And you should not be less valuable to any church that you're ever in. And if you do have gifts for celibacy, I just want to encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 7. I mean, where Paul's talking about singleness in particular and the gifts and blessings that that is. But let's never forget, whatever stage you're in as a single, or a friend of yours is as a single, never forget that Jesus Christ himself on his earthly ministry never married. And he was no less fulfilled. He was no less valuable, you could say. And so you too, as a single, are just as valuable to God and to Christ's covenant church. And for those who are married and hope to be married, never forget that marriage isn't first and foremost about your happiness. A marriage is first and foremost about the glory of God, about displaying what he has done through Jesus Christ, displaying Christ's love for the church. So that means if, if we as husbands or as you as wives are not secure in Christ's love, if you are not steeped in Christ's love, if you are not joyful in Christ's love, it means that you will not have the resources you need to serve your spouse well. If Jesus is just a wise teacher to you, if Jesus is just a sage for your life, if you only appreciate Jesus when your life goes well, you're not going to be able to love your spouse with the type of love that Paul's talking about here because Paul says to husbands and wives here that they should love each other as Christ has loved the church. He closes kind of with a summary statement of everything that he just talked about. He said, 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's a personal application saying, look, the only resource you have available to serve one another in in your marriage is Christ's own love for you. So make Christ's love your basis, the source of your love for others. And finally, for all of us as the church, all of us as believers, whether you're single or married, it's all of us remember and believe that Christ is so united to his church, so inseparable from it, that he will never fail in his duty as a husband. We as earthly husbands are going to fail. We'll make mistakes. But Christ as a husband never fails to protect, never fails to teach, never fails to provide. And that's true for our church. He's teaching us week in and week out. He's growing us week in and week out. He's encouraging us week in and week out through fellowship, through his word, and through worship. So always remember that Christ as our husband, he's a good husband. He'll never stop loving us because his own glory is at stake. Thomas Watson put it this way, Christ never thinks he has loved his spouse enough until he can see his own face in her. My friends, there's a lot more we could say about marriage. I've already said a lot. A lot I had to leave out. But the high call for Christian marriage is extremely important today. And we, as Christians, have an opportunity to display the gospel through faithful, God-glorifying relationships. This is God's will for Christian marriage, that we would be so full of love for Christ that it would show in our Christian marriages. Amen. Let's go now to God and ask his blessing on his word. Please pray with me.